You are now tuned in to Saved and Woke. Yes, I am. What up, everybody? It's your boy, MSW. That's Mr. Saved and Woke, also known as Juan Enrique Tusei, here with another episode of the Saved and Woke podcast, where Christ and consciousness go hand in hand. Today's episode covers a lot of topics, mainly critical race theory and intersectionality. I had a great conversation with my friend, Chelsea Prevet, and I'm really, really glad that I recorded this episode when I did um, before I got fatigued trying to explain these topics to people who dismiss them or don't care about them. For those of you who do not know or aren't aware, on November 30th, so about a couple weeks ago, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, Council of Seminary Presidents had uh, a celebration which was supposedly to celebrate their i guess the 20th anniversary of uh, their the baptist faith and and message which is which is fine it, make, it makes sense that they would you know come to celebrate the anniversary of such you know an important resolution uh, but one thing that they also did was they took a stance against they actually officially denounced critical race theory and and intersectionality um and what i'll do is i'm just gonna i'm gonna read the the statement in full and just share some of my opinions about it what makes me kind of confused and then we'll get into my conversation with chelsea all right so here's the full statement so it's on this 20th anniversary year of the Baptist faith and message as revised and adopted by the Southern Baptist Convention in 2000. The Council of Seminary Presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in its annual session hereby reaffirms with eagerness the Baptist faith and message as the doctrinal statement that unites and defines Southern Baptist cooperation and establishes the confessional unity of our convention. Our six seminaries are confessional institutions standing together in this classic statement of biblical truth. All professors must agree to teach in accordance with and not contrary to the Baptist faith and message. This is our sacred commitment and privilege, and every individual faculty member and trustee of our institutions shares this commitment. We are thankful for the theological commitments of the Southern Baptist Convention standing against the tide of theological compromise and in the face of an increasingly hostile secular culture. Nothing really wrong there. And then this last little blurb. In light of current conversations in the Southern Baptist Convention, we stand together on historic Southern Baptist condemnations of racism in any form, and we also declare that affirmation of critical race theory, intersectionality, and any version of critical theory is incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. Yeah. (laughs) So in the same breath that they condemn racism, they also... (laughs) condemn uh, a framework that thinks critically about race and its effects on people's lived experiences and on society as a whole. 
and on intersectionality, which is also another helpful framework in understanding those realities. Like I said, I'm so glad I recorded this conversation with uh, Chelsea beforehand, um, because like I said, I've just reached a point of fatigue with trying to talk about these things with people who just want to resist and do as Jamar Tisby stated is to hold on and defend their whiteness or to defend whiteness for non-white supporters and sympathizers with uh, this statement and statements like it. Speaking of Jamar Tisby, who I respect a lot, and he is the co-founder and president of The Witness, which is a black Christian collective. I really like his statement uh, that he made. I'll include a link to his statement. I'll also include a link to the link that I the the article I just read from that has the full statement as well as comments from the six seminary presidents, which I won't read. This is what Jamar had to say. The seminary presidents could have simply acknowledged the 20th anniversary of the Baptist faith and messages adoption and stated that they remain dedicated to its doctrines. Instead, they focused on critical race theory and intersectionality. By highlighting critical race theory, intersectionality, and any version of critical race theory as particularly acute threats to Southern Baptist orthodoxy, the seminary presidents take aim at virtually anyone who advocates for racial justice beyond hugs, handshakes, and symbolic statements. I could not agree more with that. And so when I was trying to find the original, when I was trying to find this statement, because I heard had heard that, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention or SBC had denounced critical race theory. And when I first went to find the statement myself, I was kind of confused because what I originally found was uh, a resolution. I would, yeah, an old resolution by the SBC made in June, made on June 1st, 2019. And they made a lot of statements that I, I mean, that didn't seem to be problematic. And one statement that I just, uh, agree with completely, and let me find that. Yes, yeah, so it says, whereas critical race theory and intersectionality alone are insufficient to diagnose and redress the root causes of the social ills that they identify, which result from sin, yet these analytical tools can aid in evaluating a variety of human experiences. All right, so that was just one clause from the entire resolution, but I agree with that statement. I do agree that critical race theory and intersectionality are useful analytical tools that are extremely helpful in evaluating a variety of human experiences and even those experiences uh, in the church. Um, However, I do not believe that they identify the root cause, which obviously, as a believer, I believe is sin and, you know, general human brokenness um, as a result of our breaking our relationship with uh, Father God. So I, I didn't have an issue with that statement, and I didn't have an issue with the statement overall, but this is the old one. And then I saw the new one that said what I just shared, and I'm just like, 
the first thing that that struck me as odd <laughs> and that I was well yeah the first thing that struck me was the, the fact that it said that we stand together on historic Southern Baptist condemnations of racism and I was like historic because I'm like where was the Southern Baptist Convention during Jim Crow and during convict leasing and I'm not sure how old the Southern Baptist Convention is, but during slavery and and Reconstruction, um, because I would think that if they were being honest with themselves, they would have to come to grips, and the the statements that the, that would be made would be uh, a more upfront and forthcoming acknowledgement of the Southern Baptist Convention's. complicit complicity if that's a word in in racism and acknowledging the fact that not only did they passively stand by and allow racist policies and racists to do what they will but they actually supported and warped scripture and theology to support racism and to 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 almost deify whiteness i think that a lot of evangelical christians try to act as if or they they believe that by virtue of their salvation that they are no longer subject to the ills of this world and therefore frameworks like critical race theory and intersectionality do not apply to them or anyone else who is in the church which i believe is ridiculous because like i just mentioned we can just look through history and see where christians or people claiming to be christians and all yeah legit christian leaders affirmed slavery affirmed racism, affirmed the ungodly and unbiblical oppression of others at the same time that they profess their faith in Christ. Put simply, I don't believe being a Christian makes you immune to that, and I I believe that critical race theory and intersectionality, when applied uh, in submission to the gospel or as a subordinate to the gospel are helpful and will continue to be helpful. We need to take a critical look at these, at these complex problems. Uh, they've been around for a while. And so they've had a lot of time to adapt, to evolve, to transform in whatever way they need to, to survive. Um, Michelle Alexander in The New Jim Crow calls it continuation by transformation. And yeah, it, it, it's useful. Anyway, uh, Chelsea and I, we have a good conversation about it. She has a lot of really, really keen insights into these issues. And she's just a fiercely intelligent and just really great conversation, Lisa. I had fun having this conversation with her, and I think you all will enjoy it as well. And I hope that you all are encouraged to continue to 
appraise society and even appraise the church with a spirit-led and critical lens um, as it uh, pertains to to race oppression and achieving justice god's justice in the world so without further ado enjoy so now we starting okay so look okay. everybody i'm here with my girl with my <laughs> friends dr chelsea, oh, stop. <laughs> chelsea michelle privet okay i had to let them know all right i don't <laughs> just be having nobody on this show i got a lot of friends all my friends ain't on the podcast that's all i'm saying <laughs> So I would be wrong if I didn't clarify. I'm not a doctor yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> Almost. Mm-hmm. Or when we do you, uh, what, so what, 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 when do you defend or whatever? In the spring. Okay. In the spring. So I'm in my last year. Okay. That's what's up. Well, you on the way. I am. What was it to me? <laughs> <laughs> Yo, like, so I just say that because I don't know if I've done this in person, like bragged on you to yourself, to you, but you mad smart, Chelsea. And I want y'all to know, <laughs> listeners, Chelsea is very, very smart. Like I, when I, when I think like there is qualifications you have to meet being saved, obviously one of them aware of social justice issues and be, but also I was like, I mean, to have an intelligent conversation, you got to at least meet me. And I remember when I realized I was like, yo, Chelsea, like, smart, smart. (laughs) And I asked you one time, we were at at church, and I don't know if it was a Sunday or Bible study, doesn't matter. And I asked you what you were studying or what you were going to be studying when you were in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And you told me, and I was just like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot what it was, but can you um, remind me? So what were you you studying? What's What's your research focusing on? Okay, so I don't know what I told you back then. <laughs> I don't know if that was before I actually started or not. Gotcha. But my actual dissertation is called The Misdiagnosis of Speech Sound Disorders in Spanish-Speaking Preschoolers Acquiring African-American English. So I'm looking at language contact between Spanish and African-American English, looking at what typical development looks like in four-year-olds with those two languages so that we can better diagnose more accurately diagnose uh speech and language disorders in that population see i told y'all um i'm a speech language pathologist by the way (laughs) yeah yeah so uh, another reason i wanted to have uh, chelsea on the show so is because one time Chelsea came to chill with uh, my wife and I after service one time. So Chelsea and I, we don't go to the same church, but at this time, Monique and I, we were looking for churches and we were going to, um, we had uh, visited Chelsea's church. Chelsea, uh, what church do you go to? Mm -hmm. I go to Christ Central Church. Mm -hmm. Christ Central Church in Durham. So yeah, we had visited there Mm -hmm. while we were looking and she came over to the crib and we just, that as conversations with me tend to go, we started talking <laughs> about issues related to social justice. And it was yeah. just a great conversation. And I just, and I didn't want the conversation to stop, but Chelsea wasn't there to chill with me. She was there <laughs> to chill with my wife. 
Um, and yeah, so that's it. it we was vibing. We'll just put it at that. And yeah. at that moment, I was like, you know what? I was like, you know what? I've been thinking about having Chelsea on the podcast, but now I really want Chelsea on the podcast. <laughs> so I'm really glad that we can have this conversation today. Uh, before we get into it, I do want to get some more background information on you. Like, what I ask all my guests is, look, what is your, what is your background in Christianity? Or basically, how did you mm-hmm. become saved? And how did you enter into your own relationship with God? Cool. So um, I grew up in a Christian family, um, very religious Christian family. So I'm what I think they call a pew baby. (laughs) So I've been in church all my life. Um, And I think I was like eight or nine years old. I don't know how many, if I've ever told this story publicly before, but anyway, I was, um, I was about eight years old when I was at vacation Bible school one year at church. Um, My family was living in South Carolina at the time. And that's when I first started thinking about like, what does it mean to be saved? Cause I heard people talking about it all the time, but you know, it was normal. But for some reason that summer I was like really paying attention to it. Like, what does that mean? Um, And so I asked my dad at home, I was like, do you have to go up in front of the church in order to be saved? And he was like, no, you don't. But I think it's a good thing to do is basically what he said. And so that Sunday, I went up to give my life to Christ, right? When they did the the altar call. Mm And I think that was the first time I ever saw my daddy cry (laughs) when I did that. But that was like my first um, experience that I remember in really, you know, thinking about God intentionally and, and what being in relationship with God is like. And that was when I first um, felt like I had a personal relationship with God. Um, my dad also something that he said to us growing up all the time excuse me was um he said you have to know God for yourself you have to read the Bible for yourself and so I always did that from a really young age and so that's something that I really appreciate about my upbringing um and on top of that I also grew up in a church environment that wasn't healthy um but in that that environment would you say it'd be that way yeah it do um in that environment i saw my dad how he would um sometimes he would preach a whole nother sermon when we got home like if the pastor said something he didn't agree with he would be like i don't agree with that this is why he would state scripture so like i grew up with that model of thinking critically for yourself about your faith in the bible um and yeah so um so i started studying the bible really young um but i think another major shift for me happened when I moved to Arizona I think it's been four years ago now five (laughs) wow um (laughs) 2000 yeah it was 2015 when I moved to Tucson 
And I was going there for um, my doctoral program, um, but I, I already knew very well that it was also a spiritual move for me. Um, I was going out there not knowing anybody um, and I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to uh, really grow in my faith while I was away from all of those like traditions and all of the things that I had been taught because I already, I was going in with questions. I had a lot of questions. There were a lot of inconsistencies that I was recognizing about um, the theology that was handed down to me. Um, and so I went in to Tucson like, okay, Jesus, like, what does all of this mean? And basically how I started to describe it is I basically gutted my whole theology <laughs> and Jesus was the only thing left. And I was like, okay, Jesus, let's rebuild this. Um, and I was just really blessed to have um, great people in my life. God always brings around the right people um, to really help me through that, um, through that season. And that was really the season where I first started having faith conversations around justice. That was the first time I heard Christians talking about justice and talking about um, actually dwelling in community, not just within your church family community, but, um, but living out your faith in a social way. Um, yeah, that was my, my first exposure to that in Tucson. Um, and it was interesting because I also have a minor in public health. And so I was also at the same time being introduced to the concept of social justice in the academic environment. And so those things were happening at the same time. Um, and it really challenged me to think about how um, my calling as a Christian and my professional calling are the same and really seeking God in how to live that out. Um, yeah, so now I'm back in Durham and, you know, still in process, have um, had to face some, some things that, um, you know, I grew up with still, like still being in that process of rebuilding. Um, Cause I had done a lot of, I don't believe in that anymore. But when I first got back, I hadn't done a lot of, this is what I believe instead. Um, so that's what the process has looked like for me coming back to Durham. Um, so doing a lot of reading, <laughs> like really seeking um, good, Christ-centered voices and um, yeah, just having a consistent theology is really important to me. So that's what's up. I so could you give like an example of one of those? I don't believe this anymore, and one this is what I believe now. Hmm. So probably a big one because it kind of covers a lot of things. Um, it wasn't until I came back to Durham that I realized the theology that had been handed down to me was a prosperity gospel. 
Mm. I had heard of that. I'm gonna say it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know how else to do it. So, <laughs> I um, yeah, because I had heard of prosperity gospel and like imagined like mega church pastors, you know, wanting to buy a private jet, like all of these things. But I was listening to a podcast one day with um, Stephanie Tate, who wrote a book called The View from Rock Bottom, Finding God's Embrace in Our Pain. And she was talking about her book and she said, Prosperity gospel is anytime you have a transactional relationship with God. So if your theology says, if I do this, then God has to do that. That's a prosperity gospel. So it completely shifted the way that I, I view prosperity gospel. And um, I had to like completely break that down and how, in all of the ways that, um, that showed up in my life um and it was it was really intense because i because of what i was experiencing at the time so as i was coming to this realization i um sustained a hip injury and um was in pain all the time and ended up being on crutches for like two months and so during that time i got a lot of um you know we're gonna pray so like you don't have to go to the doctor you don't have to have surgery you don't have to do all of these things and I had already prayed about it and I only told one person, I only told my older sister this, um, once I actually decided to have the surgery, I was like, God told me before that I was going to have the surgery. And so it was interesting, um, you know, having heard that and then having all of these people around me be like, no, um, like God can heal you. Um, you can have surgery if you want to have surgery, like all of this. So it was like, it, it was really real in the moment, like the, how um, it was being brought to my attention. And so I had to do a lot of work to say, um, what does the Bible really say about healing? What does the Bible really say about prosperity? And so that led me to um, really think about what is my theology around suffering and um, seeing how suffering is um, a part of being human and it's a part of the Christian walk and um, the Bible doesn't shy away from that. Um, and um, it was something that, that had been in the back of my mind because I always noticed how uh, particularly when reading Paul's letters, I was like, Paul talks about suffering a lot and we don't talk about suffering at all at church. <laughs> and so it was, uh, that was like one of the inconsistencies, right? That I was like, but I had kind of like put a pin in it. Like I'll go back to that later. But then like once I, I had was like really faced with it, um, with my injury and with having surgery and all of that, it was like, I, I couldn't put it off anymore. I was like, I, I have to, deal with this yeah you were living it 
Yeah. You had to live your faith out. And it was like, wait, what do I believe? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So real quick, I want to, I want to jump in real quick because for those people who will be watching the video, you'll notice that I have been like smirking, trying not to laugh and kind of cover my face. And the reason it is, is because although now we don't go to the same church, at one point we did go to the same church. And I remember when Chelsea got that hip injury, uh. I remember seeing her and I was like, man, she's still walking around with that hip injury. Where your faith at? I didn't say this to her. <laughs> I was just like, come on, <laughs> let's, let's lay some hands. I'm like, Chelsea, you know, you can lay hands on yourself. Yeah, a lot of people said that to me. Do. Yeah, so I, yeah, I remember that. And yeah, so uh, Chelsea, she was a step ahead of me <clears throat> in this faith deconstruction that so many of my friends have gone through. And I think we kind of just continually go through. Like, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not done. Uh, We're I, never I done. I remember one thing that was kind of shaking and stirring for me was. when well th this documentary that i saw on netflix called american gospel mm -hmm. and i had already started the process of deconstructing my faith and uh, coming into an understanding of what the prosperity gospel was and how much of what i was taught it was just unbiblical and but that documentary just it just pretty much to me anyway i think it does it does a, it does a pretty thorough job of outlining the main tenets or characteristics of prosperity mm -hmm. gospel like not just the from a theological basis but what like ministers will do to kind of like protect themselves and protect their prosperity gospel kingdom facade. so to speak <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i was just like wait so this is prosperity gospel and i just have to like go back like wait so that means this thing that I believe is not true. And if I don't believe this, then that means this thing that I've been doing is completely unbiblical, is completely unspiritual, is just all me. Um, and it's like so much of my prayers weren't really prayers, they're like demands mm. and fueled by just straight up selfish ambition. Mm -hmm. And like, and there's so much, uh, like, I, I became to like read the Bible more humbly. It hurt, but I'm so great. I'm, I'm grateful for it. And I'm grateful that that you went through it as well. I remember, I remember, I could tell if something was going on. Like you was different. Like, <laughs> like I, was, I was like, man, even before you left, because like you had this look on you that that was like, yeah, like I'm not like y'all no more. <laughs> not that you know we're anything bad, but it's just like, you know, we used to be on the same page. I'm on a different page now. Yeah, like, maybe even a different book. Yeah, that's how so, it yeah, felt sometimes. That. I'm, I'm glad. That's what's up. Cool. So you shared your journey, your faith journey, which we're all still on. Um, so how, and you kind of, you kind of got to this, but how would you say you became socially conscious? Or yeah, how, did so, you, how did you wake up? <laughs> um, so when I was in Tucson, I think the first step was the fact that it was my first time being in a city that was so white <laughs> and there and there was not a large um, black population at all. And it kind of threw me because 
I was used to being like the only black girl in class. Um, I went to Wake Forest University, so like very white. Um, but it was a whole different level, like being in a whole city where it was like very white, not just like in terms of people, because there's a, a significant um, Latinx population there, right? Um, but Tucson is where I started to understand what people meant when they said protecting whiteness. I saw that show up in a lot of ways, like, especially being a speech language pathologist who studies bilingualism and, you know, knowing the research about the benefits of bilingualism and then ha seeing like all of the policies that are against bilingualism. Um, because this is America, we speak English. Um, and so it made me more conscious of my own race than I had ever been because I had always, um, and I still do view myself as a Christian first, but Tucson was the first time where I was like, I'm black. <laughs> and that means that has serious implications. Um, I should also note that I grew up in Durham. So like, I've been around like black people everywhere all my life. <laughs> um, and so, um, that's when I really started kind of grappling with the concept of, of what race means to me. Um, because I also like in a lot of the Christian contexts I was in, it was kind of like, you know, as a Christian, we, um we transcend all of like racism and like all of these other things um so it shouldn't touch us it shouldn't like really have a, a serious impact on us mm -hmm. um but then that wasn't my lived experience and so being out there and thinking about that experiencing that and then seeing um the experiences of so many other people um particularly through the campus ministry i was involved in um wesley um, where the pastors, um, I was there under the tenure of two different pastors, um, but they were, um, they were very conscious in speaking about justice and particularly the second pastor when she basically, her favorite passage of scripture is Isaiah 58. And so, um, she would bring it up all the time. And so, um, I ended up reading through all of Isaiah and like writing down everything that I was learning about justice from God's perspective. And then she made Matthew 25 kind of like the mission statement of our group. And um, that's the passage where Jesus is like, um, I'll separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep when you saw the the hungry you fed you fed them when you saw mm -hmm. the the thirsty you gave them drink when you saw a foreigner you took them in et cetera et cetera whatever you do to the least of these you do it unto me mm -hmm. and um, so that was that was pivotal um, because having that as our mission statement we were intentional about doing each of those things. And we were privileged to be able to serve um, 
immigrants and asylum seekers um, who were right there, who basically, you know, came to our front door um, because we ended up, um, one of the churches ended up uh, being a receiving site for people seeking asylum. And so um, they would come and we would um, play with the kids and, you know, um, take them clothes and cook meals. And there were people who stayed overnight and um, wrote letters to people in detention. And so it, but that was when it became very practical um, for me. And so um, kind of all of those things coming together. And I, um, the year before we did that, I had led a small group on um, the Gospel of Luke. And um, it's often referred to as the social gospel. You get to know social Jesus um, <clears throat> and all of the ways that, that he treats people and, and ministers to people's needs in that way. Um, so all of that kind of came together at one, like in, in that season for me. Cool. That, yeah. That's what's up. Thank you for sharing. Like, yeah, I can so much of my experience mirrors a lot of the things, but I think it's really cool. Like the, I feel like the, the experience you have with just like uprooting yourselves, uprooting yourself and going to this completely different context where whiteness is like, not just the norm, but you got to see like that, that, that protecting that um, mainstream society often engages in. Um, one fun fact that's not really a fun fact, but a fact that I learned uh, while in my graduate program was that it's crazy that how uh, there's, there's a tipping point that is trackable and consistent amongst communities in terms of like when they are okay with immigrants and then when they're not okay and begin to protect mm. them. And I believe, I think, mm -hmm. I think they said once a population gets up, what, uh, like 30%. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've read that. I've read an article on that. I yeah. Where, I don't know where I read it or where I heard it. Cause I'm now I'm trying to actually, you know, include links to the stuff that I'm saying instead of just saying words, <laughs> just expecting people to believe what I say. But yeah, I encourage everybody listening, watching to, to look it up, but 30% is the number. And it's, and it's crazy because like you think that, Oh man, these, these communities are just, the way they are and these people are the way they are like not nah, like it's it's interesting i'll leave it at that i'm not prepared to talk about that on um today, but maybe <laughs> i'll get to it in another episode but 30 percent, like what like but 29 percent, everybody's cool like, oh yeah man we love we love yeah. everybody here man we, we're 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 a, a mix we're a, we're a melting pot mm -hmm. <laughs> right yeah yeah, and and the other thing about being in that context, and um, especially in being in, in proximity to the border, um, which I frequented, um, and I didn't know that, and um, you know, and and serving immigrants in that way and seeing their faith, because I think the dominant narrative is like they are. I mean, obviously in a racialized society and inferior people, but also like a people that needs to be evangelized, but to see how their faith carried them to where they were was very profound for me. Wow. 
you might have just changed the whole topic of this podcast. <laughs> because I want to get into that. Um, actually, you know what? That might be like a bonus conversation. But okay. <laughs> to the questions that I have for you, and just the main things I want to talk about. I wanted to share another story or another side of a story that I've shared before in the podcast. And it's related to you, Chelsea. What? Yep. So in the first two episodes that I did with Deandra, I talked one of the first episode, I can't remember the order of how I did it, but they were, they were called uh, the awkwardness or something like that. The awkwardness of being woke in Christian spaces. And the next one was like the awkwardness of being Christian in, no, yeah, Christian in strictly progressive spaces and then mm-hmm, woke mm-hmm. in strictly uh, Christian spaces. And I shared this one story of how I was at church one time. We were having, we were at a, what they call a leadership. And I don't know how we got to talking about black on black crime, but ever, I, ever since I learned, I came, I've come into more understanding of the reality or lack thereof of black on black crime like whenever i hear that term i'm just like it's, it's like mm-hmm, nails mm-hmm. on chalk i think i remember that meeting i think i was there you were there and that's why i'm talking about it right now yes it is so funny that we both remember that meeting <laughs> so, yeah because it was that was the first time where i mean so i have been there was plenty of times where my christianity was kept coming to conflict with just like being at a, a liberal arts university and that's well I think anyway yeah UNC Chapel is pretty pretty liberal overall of course no everybody's not liberal or mm-hmm. considers themselves progressive or democrat or whatever but I would say it's largely uh, liberal so I was used to having my Christianity come into conflict with my social knowledge, but I was, I was not used to having my social uh, mm-hmm. understanding come in conflict with my Christianity, especially amongst, I was like, hey man, we're all saved and we black. <laughs> so we all on the same, same page here. And I found nope. out that we were not. Nope. The about that was, we were talking, I think, I'm, I'm assuming we haven't been talking about, it came up. Uh, police violence against black people mm-hmm. and then somebody i remember who this was but i ain't gonna say who the name was and then he was like man we gotta stop killing ourselves and all that like and mm-hmm. based on which is true like nobody should kill anybody obviously right but they presented that they presented quote-unquote black on black crime yeah it's one of the reasons why they're why Sounds so dumb to say, but mm-hmm. uh, why <laughs> uh, police brutality? And I, I'm a straight shooter. I, I like to, I like to just you know, whenever I have a problem, even at work, I just like go to like even if my supervisor like, hey, look, look, hey, I, I understand that we've got this, this going on. I want to just lay everything out that that I'm seeing so we can come to an understanding, right? And I, you know, as I'm older now, I think then I was probably 24 yeah 24 because in 2014 just started coming it was my well, I think that was my that wasn't my first leadership meeting but that was the first leadership meeting where I said something mm-hmm. and, 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 anyway that's another thing <laughs> and so I said so after he made after the, he made his comment other people were 
chiming in and pretty much agreeing. <coughs> I just came in. I said, sorry for clapping. Loud. I hope that wasn't too loud. I was like, there's no such thing as black and black. <laughs> and I did my And best. I was in the back like. <laughs> and I did my best to explain it. And I said some other things that I don't remember. But before I could finish my statements, someone interrupted me. They cut me off. And first of all, I just, I was like, well, I was, that, that caught me off guard because I was cut off. Nobody else had been cutting anybody off. And, and not only that, but I looked to the person who was leading the meeting. I kind of glanced like, so mm-hmm. what just happened? Because like, regardless of whether we disagree, I feel like we should, you know, respect one another. Right. So just allow each other to, to speak like I had been doing up until I spoke. <laughs> and, but no, they, they kind of just like looked off and I, I, I don't know, I just kind of felt alone. And, and I was just like, wow, like I'm out, I'm by myself out here. And yeah. Like I, I remember, I don't remember exactly what you said either. I just remember coming up to you afterwards and being like, thank you for saying something. <laughs> Yes, you did. You did. I do remember that as well. But so nobody said, everybody was like, pretty much two, I remember two people in particular were coming at me. And I was, it was really clear that there was going to be no convincing them or no speaking to them, at least not, not for me. And the reason I'm sharing this story is because Chelsea was the only person who said something not, not, not even in my defense, but I'm going to just say in my defense. Chelsea came to my defense <laughs> and she was like, well, and, but, and the thing is, like, Chelsea is, I feel like the reason, one thing I like about Chelsea is like, you are very, like, just straight up, very genuine. Um, but you had a little bit more tact than I did. <laughs> and when Chelsea said that, I remember you said, I was like, wow, that was, that was really good. <laughs> like, well, you know, she said, yeah, like, black on black crime in the media is really as i agree with wildlife it is really sensationalized and i was like where do you use where do you use those <laughs> sat words and uh, it just made me, it, it, i felt good to know that what more so than just like oh i got somebody else on my side i just i felt like at that moment everybody was talking as if i was crazy mm-hmm. but yeah because i wasn't gonna say anything but then when they started talking like you were crazy i was like wait <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i appreciated that and it was like look now y'all have to at least consider and also i guess maybe it might have been because i was newer um i'm not sure how long you had been around them uh, at that time but i was like okay chelsea's been here with y'all like she's yeah. part of the group so someone from <laughs> your group has said something so now you have to at least at least pause and you can't come with her the way you came with me <laughs> uh, so I really, really, I appreciated that, and that was way before I had even had the concept of this podcast. But once I did, I think like it was that 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 yeah that situation. And I was like, you know what, I gotta get Chelsea on the podcast at one point. Um, but you were in Arizona, <laughs> nowhere that I could use Zoom. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so that's why you're here. I'm so glad to have you. And we've already had a great conversation. It's been, yeah. and I haven't even gotten to the questions yet. But one thing I want to talk about <laughs> was like, so kind of on the, on the, along the same lines of, the, of that conversation that we had, I feel like so many believers who like true, uh, true believers um, mm-hmm. reject a lot 
about anything related to social justice Mm -hmm. because it is like i said in the text message because either because it's yeah because it's too worldly of a concept Mm -hmm. or like if what we're talking about if the 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 concept or idea did not originate in in the church and there's a i've written down a few on my handy dandy sticky notes (laughs) and you actually reminded me of one because one of your books back there has one of my favorites Yes, we're going to. Is it the critical race theory? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, what what I'm what I'm going to do is, let me see how how do I actually how do I want to do this? Do I want to watch the video, or do I want to just talk about these concepts? We can watch the videos later. That can be another conversation. We're going to have you back again, Chelsea, if, if you are up. Yes, of okay, course. So we are going to, let's, let's just start with the one that, we, that I was just uh, alluding to. So mm-hmm. um, critical race theory mm-hmm. is something that I've fairly recently, uh, I, I learned about it in, in grad school. I remember the first day, that was one of the first phrases that I learned was critical race theory. And it just, Mm -hmm. once it was explained to me, it immediately made sense. It immediately made sense. And I don't think there's anything, what shocks me about uh, some some believers, uh, just uh, reticence and just outright, just rejection of some Mm -hmm. of these terms is just like, to me, how how innocent they are. Cause I'm like, to, to me, talking about critical race theory is like, has the same, spiritual weight as talking about the color blue you know it's just like this this chapstick is blue you know <laughs> and that, that that's not a that's not a carnal thing to say and it's not really a righteous mm. thing to say mm-hmm. i mean it might be mm-hmm. right because it is true like it's <laughs> like this, this mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. and it's just a description of mm-hmm. of reality and like so critical race theory in and of itself is like to my understanding is is a theory and theories are theories are just ways of trying to understand trying to understand the world but before i get off into my into my explanation which i feel like i've probably given a couple times in passing in uh, in, in previous episodes but chelsea could you provide our listeners with a brief explanation of your understanding of what critical race theory is and mm-hmm. its value and how it helps us stop there okay um you know it's funny that after you text me about what you wanted to talk about today it's come up in a couple of conversations that i've had um and one of them um i was talking to uh a minister who um he talked about how people would call him like Marxists for talking about critical race theory. And he actually met one of Derrick Bell's students. Derrick Bell is the black lawyer who, um, who laid the foundation for critical race theory. Um, and the student was like, you know, a lot of the, the concepts came from his Christian faith. Um, and so that was, yeah. And it was really neat to learn that, Um, because I started studying critical race theory about two years ago. Um, and so basically, um, it, 
it's been called a theory, but it's a framework. It's also been called a movement that started in legal studies um, by Black lawyers who saw how the law wasn't working for us. The law wasn't working to actually bring justice. And so they started thinking critically about how race influences society and the outcomes that we see, hence the term critical race theory. Um, and so basically it's a way of looking at um, whatever system you're in, because it's been applied to, to different fields, not just the legal field now, um, to look at how does race, um, because we live in a racialized society that was intentionally built on racial hierarchy, like how do those things still um, manifest today? Um, so it's a way of looking at um, realities and outcomes within systems in order to say, um, this is how race fits into this. And so if you want to build a just system, this is how we can correct for it. That's my understanding of critical race theory. That is beautiful. My explanation <laughs> of critical race theory is much shorter, um, but it works for me. So I'll say it again, although I've said it before, just in case, because I don't know where people are, how people are coming into the show. So critical race theory was introduced to me uh, as a way of understanding well, that race is a factor although not always the main factor, but often the main factor, and basically every societal, environmental, financial reality. Mm -hmm. definitely, in, definitely in the United States and probably in all of Western society and wherever they have colonized. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense. Uh, and, it, and it's not just, and it's not exclusive to race, like gender at some, is, at, is, at, is at play in every interaction. Um, socioeconomic status is, is a factor. Uh, and just critical race theory just focuses on how race is a factor in any given, in, in whatever context is the, is the focus. And again, so that, to me, that's just such a an okay thing to say like okay critical, like, critical race i always think of critical race theory as kind of like a lens and so i'm, I'm going yes. to have critical race lenses on yes and so i'm going to see okay how is how is race at play in this situation or in this situation or in this situation and you have to you have to actively put them on because like although we live in like you said in an intentionally racialized higher intentionally racialized society with racial hierarchy organized with in racial terms, uh, white people at top, black people at the bottom, everybody mm -hmm. else in between. Mm -hmm. um, but we're taught to not see it. So yes. we have to have these lenses so so we can see it. It's kind of like, you know, we all have heat, 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 we all have heat escaping our bodies, but it's not until you put on infrared goggles that you can actually see the heat signatures. And we got to see the racial signatures in all these situations. I like you know? that. Yeah. I, you know, that just came to me. Mm. 
Okay. Um, amen. <laughs> and and critical race theory is a tool that empowers you to do that. It's just like you know, as a kid, there's all these like lines and scribbly shapes and stuff that you see all around you. But until you learn that they're letters and the sounds that they make, until you learn like the meaning that we that people have placed on them, you don't know how to interact with them. And even though people create language we can't just say oh language is fake i don't have to i don't have to use it i don't i don't hear language <laughs> right i hear hearts okay i hear intention. i'm gonna use that one too <laughs> you can keep that one i want everybody to use it so yes language is man-made we can change the rules based off of what we want but that doesn't make it. That doesn't mean it's not real. I heard some of the. I think the the mm-hmm. the, the best uh, explanation I've heard of just like the re, like the reality of race is that you know yes, race is a man made concept, but you can't just ignore it. Just like this shirt, I'm not sure if this is 100 percent cotton. It's probably got some synthetic material. It's man made, but it's here. Yeah. And I can't say that it does not exist. I can't yeah. just ignore mm-hmm. its existence. So yeah, critical race theory. Um, I don't know why critical race theory is such a stumbling block, call it that, for for believers. Do you have any ideas, Chelsea? I, I do. Guesses. I do. And sometimes, so um, a lot of times, I usually do have guesses about these things because, I mean. Although I've talked about like that, that, that experience I had at church. I mean, I used to be sleep and I would have been making, I, would, I used I remember making the same comments like, man, we got to stop killing ourselves, man. We got to stop doing this. And mm-hmm. I, I was always blaming black people for black people's problems. Cause that's a dominant narrative. And we all get exposed to that narrative. We all kind of get indoctrinated with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you do have to wake up to like, oh, this is the story that I've been told, but there are other stories going on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, why why do you think critical race theory and just other theories in general are just so hard to grasp? Yeah, I think um, like in in regards to race, I feel like a lot of times when I have heard pastors talk about race or racism, even if they acknowledge that racism exists, um, it's still taught in a way that it's like out there. And so you hear scriptures quoted like, in the kingdom of God, there's not male or female, Jew or Gentile, bond or free, like everybody's the same. Like we're one race under God. Um, And again, like kind of that prosperity gospel seeping in of like, because we are gods, we don't feel these things like they don't happen to us as believers. Um, And so then you get this oppressive narrative coming from the church, even from black churches that are looking at impoverished people like well if you just got saved then that wouldn't affect you your life would be better um so there's no consciousness of um 
the systemic realities at play or there's no acknowledgement of it. Um, but I think it speaks to a broader theology of disembodiment, which I don't subscribe to, but I think a lot of Western Christians do, where the more saved you are or the more spiritual you are, the less your body is supposed to matter, the, the less in order to be more spiritual, you have to um, neglect your body. Um, and so I think that's the kind of the crux of it all. Like, um, like we're trying to be these spiritual beings outside of our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I see what you're saying. And I think another, what I'm not, I was about to say failure, but so my pastor has been telling me that it's important to be you know as humble as possible and if you want stuff to be received it's better to say instead of just like accusing people of being wrong especially when we're talking about brothers and sisters just say you know what's concerning you and my my concern for the church (laughs) specifically Mm -hmm. for um a lot of white brothers and sisters and some uh brothers and sisters of color who, for whatever reason, just aren't as aware, just like I used to not be. I just always I want to harp on the fact that, hey, it's a journey. Yep. Um, but I feel like we have to be able to see, like, well, so like I said, we have the, that critical race lens. Um, if you are born with a lens, like if you, like, after a while, if you are wearing some lenses, you'll get used to them. And mm-hmm. you won't be able to distinguish or you might forget that mm-hmm. you're wearing some lenses. And so like, I say, if I'm wearing some like shades and they're tinted blue, mm-hmm. I won't be able to see blue things. Everything that's not blue, I'll be able to see, but I <clears throat> won't be able to see blue. Same thing with red or any other color shade. And I feel like we have these so much, like everybody is given the set of American lenses and that blinds us to uh, staples or aspects of American culture or Americanness. But we can definitely identify everything that's not American. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times we, we, we don't see the things that aren't American. And I feel mm-hmm. like believer, American believers, because they don't see something, because they quote unquote don't see race um, or they don't think about their race. It's just like, I, I think that they ascribe that incorrectly and, and mis- or maybe mistakenly to mm-hmm. their Christianity. I'm like, oh, well, I don't see, Christ- I don't see race mm-hmm. because I'm a believer and I don't see all that stuff. But I was just like, mm-hmm. well, your non-believer, your non-believing, uh, other, non- other non-believing white people, they also don't think about their race. Mm-hmm. So if you don't think about your race, and you don't think <laughs> pretty much everything about y'all is the same. Christianity is not the reason why. Like, like y'all, mm-hmm. y'all think, y- y- and y'all are still both. Uh, y'all still have the same mentality in this issue, so, so it has nothing. So it doesn't have to do with your Christianity, pretty much. Right, right, and it does. It has to do with the the dominant American narrative, um, which includes an American gospel, an Americanized gospel. And so um, if it doesn't 
fit into that American view. Um, so it's like, while with, with those American lenses, while we're not seeing the American things, we're not seeing how, um, how that American lens is being um, superimposed onto our theological beliefs. Um, and so we end up with a belief system that's just as much American, if not more than it is biblical. Yes, is, <laughs> man. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. All right. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, I think that's a huge hurdle that a lot of people have to go through that I had to go through mm-hmm. or go over and overcome. And I think we need to pray for, we need to be in constant prayer for people to be able to see not just only how they're, uh, national context but even how your your racial context your socioeconomic status will uh will blind you from it because i remember one thing i was also thinking about like that kind of struck me one time we had a visiting pastor i don't know if you were there or not but he was talking about how we're supposed to be unifying across racial lines and across socioeconomic status and then when he said socioeconomic status that struck me because when i thought about it i was like i mean a lot of people say that Sunday is the most racist day of the week, mm-hmm. which is true because people tend to go worship with people that look like them. But I also think when I thought about it, I was like, I think Sunday might also be the most socioeconomically mm. stratified day of the week too, because people like you mostly find middle class, middle to upper class people going to church with other middle to upper class people. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of working class or <clears throat> Or poor people in those churches and I've always been in the churches with middle-class people and I was just like that was like that was a huge realization to me it was but that was one of those moments where my middle-class lenses were taken off mm-hmm. and I was just like yo mm-hmm. and, and and especially like considering all that the bible says about caring for the poor and right. I know a lot of people you know say that you know the church is not supposed to be social services, which, you know, sure. But we are at least supposed to be taking care of poor believers, of people, of poor people who are in the church. <laughs> I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, but y'all don't, we don't even know them. We don't know them. We can't even see them. And sometimes we will ascribe sinfulness to poverty. Right. And like so we have like, this idea that, yeah. that there are no saved poor people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of like what I was saying earlier about, you know, immigrants, like re- having, realizing the lenses that I had about immigrants or people who were not American needing like evangelism mm-hmm. um, and being put in a position where I was learning from them, like, whoa. <laughs> like that's that's faith right there (laughs) um but as you were talking i i was thinking about um a scripture that i've kind of been meditating on for the past few days in jeremiah 29 um where god is telling his people 
you know, they've been exiled, but God is like, make your home here. And not only that, seek the welfare of the city and pray for the city because if the city has welfare, then you'll have your welfare. And so for me, that means as God's people, as the church, our seeking justice can't be just for ourselves. It has to be for the whole city. Um, wow. And so when I, even when, when you read through the New Testament with Matthew 25 and when you read through Luke, it's, um, there's no, there's no qualification for like the poor that you're supposed to be serving, right? It just says, say that one more time. There's no qualification for the poor that you're supposed to be serving. Expound on that. So when, first of all, when, when we're talking about seeing the gospel as a gospel of justice, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's significant that Jesus opens his public ministry in Luke 4 by by reading from Isaiah, where he says, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, right? We talk about the gospel being good news. So if the gospel is good news, it has to be good news to the poor. So Jesus says, I'm anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to those who are captive, right to set to set people free who are oppressed and like that's his mission statement <laughs> like, <laughs> like he reads yeah. that pa that passage and and shuts the book and and sits down and so um that's how he opens and then that's how he closes in Matthew 25 that's his last sermon to the multitude in Matthew 25 and he ends that sermon talking about the kingdom of God is like this it's like when you care for the poor you're caring for me and when you do these things you inherit the kingdom when you don't you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven so like the <laughs> The Bible is so consistent on this. Like there are a lot of things that Christians disagree about and I understand why. And I, I've come to the place where I, it bothers me when people say the Bible is very clear about that because again, we're reading the Bible through our lenses, right? Whatever lens we have and whatever our experiences have been, but when you learn in that someone else's story, you can't read the same way. Um, and so, so there are a lot of things that we may differ on, but I think when it comes to justice and serving the poor, um, like that's the consistent thing, <laughs> like in the Old Testament and the New, like that is the thing, like every time God was upset with his people, 
I mean, look at Isaiah 58. They were fasting and praying and crying out to God. And God was like, this is not what I called you to. I called you to give yourselves to the poor, to welcome the foreigner. If you're not doing that, then your fasting does not move me. And so that's that's where I stand now, <laughs> like of all of the deconstructing and reconstructing that I've done and I'm still doing, like that is the thing that centers me because that's, I mean, that's how Jesus lived his life. So, um, yeah, he, he, he came for the sick, not for the healed. Wow. You said a whole word <laughs> right there. And you can really drop the mic. We end the podcast right there. <laughs> but there's one other, one other, uh, or a couple other phrases or terms that I've just been shocked that people are upset about. The next one is intersectionality, which to me, even more so than critical race theory, because racial race is a touchy subject, and I feel like it's always been. But intersectionality, I feel like, is a very benign way of, again, just describing the reality. Like, I remember, Mm -hmm. I wish I could have found the video so we could have played it. But the dude, he was just like, and when we talk next, whenever we get together next, there is another video I want us to show from this guy, but I can't remember which one it was. But anyway, he mentioned, he said, we we talked about this too. He said, he mentioned uh, the term woke, Mm -hmm. and he's like an, an intersectionality social justice it was like <laughs> oh and the thing is what's crazy is again like that, that that difficulty of being saved and woke sometimes is like his videos that were talking about where, where he was he was like identifying uh he has a lot of videos where he'll identify like some of the fallacies in certain ministers um theology and they're on point i was like wow man i didn't know that that was good and so I'm like, wow, man, this guy knows his stuff. And then he starts talking mm-hmm. about social justice. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think what we should all do is like, like, you know, not throw the, the baby out with the bathwater to use a cliche. But it's like, look, okay, this, what you, this is what you said here. I'm with that. We agree on this. This is what I have an issue with. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so back to intersectionality basically in my understanding actually no i'm gonna let you go what does intersectionality mean (laughs) to to you chelsea you're you're the guest you're supposed to be talking (laughs) um so intersectionality um considers not only race but how other um social identities influence how we experience the world um and how systems um affect us because of our different identities Um, And so that includes um, gender and class. Um, One of, I've heard that word so much more now, um, particularly this year. And um, one thing that I've learned that I wanna be sure to point out is that, because this is where a lot of people get intersectionality wrong, even those who are using it is that it's a way to um, 
to understand um, the compounding influence of oppressive systems. And so when I take an intersectional lens, like you might people, like if you, you might hear people say, um, like we can look at everybody from an intersectional lens, like I'm gonna identify myself, like if I'm a white woman, like I'm a white middle-class woman, like that's my intersectional identity. But really the, the, the crucial part is looking at oppressive systems. And so um, looking at how, basically who's on the bottom rung, right? And so it's not just women, it's black women, right? Because we not only live in a racialized society, we live in a patriarchal society. So those are two different systems that are, um, that influence my identity as a black woman. Um, and so I think the problem that a lot of Christians have with that um, comes from the, the gender piece. Um, not only because people who use an intersectional uh, frame consider sexual orientation, and that's something that a lot of Christians are like, okay. no, like anything having to do with sexual orientation, like we're not doing that. Um, but what I have to say to that is like, it's a reality. Like <laughs> the, LG the LGBTQ community is, experiences of oppression from the systems at play, right? Regardless of how you feel about it. Um, a, I, I, even as a black woman, I have privilege as a straight black woman, right? Um, privilege that a trans black woman does not have. Um, and so I think, I think that's the big, the big kicker for um, a lot of Christians and even for Christians who don't know about that piece, the fact that it talks about women um, and considers the experiences of women and centers the experiences of women is a problem um, because a lot of Christians take a, a patriarchal view of their faith. Um, and that could open up a whole nother conversation, but um, because the Bible is a patriarchal text, right? Um, but I personally believe that um, the gospel is not patriarchal. I believe that the writers of scripture lived in a patriarchal society and that's the position that they were writing from. Um, I don't see patriarchy in the, in the ministry of Jesus. So I'll leave that right there. But, um, but yeah, I think, <laughs> I think because it centers women, a lot of Christians have a problem with that because it rubs against their complementarian views of, of who women are supposed to be in the church. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I hadn't considered the fact that, yeah, the concept of intersectionality originated out of feminist studies, right? Or women's, women's studies? 
right and that's another scary word for christians <laughs> like yeah, yeah, feminism yeah. yeah i was like I was like, yeah when you said that i was like okay yeah, you okay well, I, I guess it, it kind of makes sense now like not that i oh that's that's right but i get it now um and like my i guess my sort of watered down understanding of intersectionality which is another reason why like i was just confused it's like just intersectionality just intersectionalism is just like a different way to describe your state of being yeah like there's no way you can like i was when i, I was telling monique before I, I came up here that i was going to talk about this and how people are mad about it she just laughed she was like i mean she said you can be mad all you want to you intersectional like <laughs> you, every, every individual is an intersection of identities and it's important. Right. like we need to know like if we're if we're going to be like uprooting injustice like we need to know how it's in, how it's impacting people. Like you know, as a man, I I benefit from male privilege, mm -hmm. right? but I'm not just a man. And there are definitely contexts in which mm -hmm. um, my maleness is not helping me, and is actually probably yeah. making me worse off because as yeah. a black male, right, I am. Uh, prime target for for police brutality for the mm -hmm. uh, for mass incarceration mm -hmm. which is slavery <clears throat> just put it like that um and even in even in cases where like if you think like a lot of times i hear uh i hear white women kind of just talk about oh white males and they'll kind of like distance themselves from mm -hmm. from the issue but i'm like you know in general i feel like the majority of white women find themselves in relationships often and usually and married to white men so you benefit from the stuff that they benefit from so you right can't push, yeah you can't, push, you can't push that off and also and, but even like you know uh in context where a heterosexual christian white male would usually benefit if in that case that person who identifies with those with those three things is also disabled and is in a context that is not conscious of mm -hmm. the needs of disabled people, then mm -hmm. they will be at a disadvantage. That right. white heterosexual Christian, maybe even um, uh, wealthy person would mm -hmm. just be at a disadvantage mm -hmm. in, in in that in that context. And so that's what intersectionality is to me. It's just a way of looking. It's a, it's a more thorough critical way to look to look at the world and mm -hmm. understand how these yeah. things play. but you know as you as you brought up those different lenses like especially like male privilege and like being disabled um like i think about how how Chris, how a lot of christians view like those things by themselves um mm. like male privilege in a patriarchal context is is supposed to be right mm -hmm. um in a prosperity gospel context able-bodied is supposed to be is supposed to have the advantage um and so i think um it just like that whole rejection of intersectionality ties back to having um a deficit view of people who don't fit into mm -hmm that that christian 
prosperity, American triumphalism framework. Wow. Well, you know, Chelsea, uh, we could go on and on, but I'm just gonna, we, we, can, we can stop it here. Um, like as, as always, before we end, we, like, I, I think it's just irresponsible for us to just talk about all the issues that we see mm-hmm. and not, not calling our father to come empower us uh, to, to do his work and for him to do what only he, he can do. So before we sign off, I'm just gonna pray and you are welcome to, to join if you have anything else to add. But uh, here we go. Lord God, thank you so, so much for this conversation. Uh, and I, I'm just thankful personally and a little selfishly just for being able to have this conversation with my, my girl, Chelsea. Um, I pray, Lord God, that you help us and all of our listeners and just the, the body of Christ nationally and internationally to continue to, well, one, to embark on for those who haven't started, but to continue on the journey of deconstructing the, the false faith that was given to us and rediscovering and reconstructing our faith based off of the truth, based off of your truth, the off of biblical gospel truth, Lord God. And help us to rightly apply this truth to our social realities. Help us rightly apply these truths when we react, when when we stand up for justice, when we vote, however, however we move about society, Lord God, help us to see the oppressed and, and, and the downtrodden and the, and the poor and impoverished the way you see them, Lord God, because you identified yourself as with them, not with the, with the affluent, Lord God. And, and this, that's not a condemnation for people who are rich or well-off, Lord God, but I just pray that we come into more and more understanding that if we do have uh, a privilege or an advantage, Lord God, that we do not allow that to blind us and desensitize us from the suffering of others, mm-hmm. Lord God. I pray that we will, we will all be your instruments, Lord God. For those of us who are lacking understanding, I pray, Lord God, that you will first make humble us so that we would be aware and come to you, Lord God, for wisdom because you give wisdom liberally. Mm-hmm. And you do not condemn us for asking for wisdom because you know we need mm-hmm. it. So, Lord God, I would just pray all these things uh, in your name, in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you so much for this conversation and this platform that Juan has to um, help bring truth to your people and anyone else who is listening. Um, I pray that as we continue these conversations, Um, that you help us to have grace towards those who disagree um, and that we have patience and compassion in our understanding. And I ask that you open all of our eyes to um, the stories that have been hidden to us, that have been hidden from us um, because of the lens of our own experiences. Help us to have... um, true compassion um, to, to suffer with, to um, abide with, to serve with, um, in order to show what your kingdom is like 
and your kingdom is for everyone um, who accepts you. Um, and we thank you for the abundance of your grace that allows us to enter in in that way, um, even not having all of the answers. And um, let us walk in the humility that we won't have all of the answers. And so let us continually seek you in our pursuit of your justice in our communities. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know I did. Chelsea gave us so much to chew on and unpack. She's definitely going to be coming back. I pray that this conversation, that this episode, encouraged you, affirmed you. And as always, until next time, keep the faith and stay woke.